Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Uh, I'm uh, with uh, Dr. Bradley Nassif, who has written a book called The Evangelical Theology of the Orthodox Church. The book was published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press in 2021. Uh, uh, This book is uh, a collection of uh, articles and contributions that uh, Dr. Nassif has made over the years. Um, and uh, in, in his constant participation uh, in conversations and dialogue with the evangelicals, uh, between, uh, between, uh, in the dialogue between the Orthodox Church and the evangelicals, right? So it is basically um, the fruit of many labors over the years Mm-hmm. Uh, a distillation of his preoccupation with this uh, dialogue. Uh, welcome, Dr. Nassif. Um, and I'm going to, uh, his personal story, uh, which is Im- amazing and, and, and is a, an important background to the book. And, and actually, he starts the book with an account of his conversion experience so to speak uh, and the book has also a wonderful preface by F- father andrew louth um, please uh, dr nasif thank you adrian it's a pleasure for me to be here and to share with the listeners uh the subject that i've written about uh, so you've asked me a little bit about my background uh, to the book so let me start with that um i grew up in the orthodox church in wichita kansas My mom and dad were Lebanese, and my grandparents came from Lebanon many years ago. I was born here in the United States, and um, then I grew up in um, a a predominantly Arabic community, uh, consisting a lot of relatives. They were uh, Lebanese, and most of them were. So in those days, we uh, were not able to get all that we'd like educationally, the amount of material in English was very hard to come by. We had maybe two books, one, The Faith of Our Fathers, and then later, 
the book by Timothy Ware, Metropolitan Callistos, who wrote Introduction to the Orthodox Church. So I say that to explain that my background, I didn't really have a clear understanding of the gospel when I was growing up. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> and so when I was 12 years old, my mom invited me. She said, Brad, come here. <clears throat> mom and dad were divorced when I was little. So I grew up in a divorced home and uh, did not have uh, much money. Mom only had an eighth grade education and uh, four kids to take care of. <clears throat> but uh, she did the best she could. So she was watching TV one night and she said, Brad, come here, watch, come here and see what's on TV. So I went and uh, listened to the man and he was preaching about Jesus Christ. And uh, this probably would have been, uh, let's see, in the late, uh, in the 1960s, I mean. And so after it was done, I turned to mother and I said, mom, who is this man? She said, his name is Billy Graham. I said, who's that? She said, I don't know, but he's preaching all over the world. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he was quite a man. And for the first time that I can remember, there was such clarity in what the gospel was about and the need for repentance and personal faith in Christ. Nothing heavy. All this was basic ABC type of, um, type of preaching, which is what he did. He's an evangelist. He's not a theologian. So um, that night, I came to, I got on my knees, repented, gave my life to Christ, and started to obey the best I knew. I never really uh, had any personal experience, though. I was, I, I made up my mind, and I did the best of repenting I knew how to do. My mother gave me a Bible, and so I began to read it. And I remember at the age of 12, when I first started reading for the words of Jesus for the first time, the Gospel of Matthew, where the Beatitudes were blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted and so forth and i began to cry because i had never read those words before and coming from jesus they just deeply touched me when i got into high school years my spiritual search began and thirst began to really uh, become very intense uh, even though i was going to church every week i was serving in the altar and i was a quote good boy uh, by the standards of my relatives, uh, I, uh, I I I didn't get messed up in drugs and 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 sex and all that, but I would say I was religious but lost. I had religion, but I didn't have a relationship with God. And uh, in fact, I was ordained as a subdeacon uh, when I was sixteen, and I was going to be a priest. And uh, still, I didn't have any direct knowledge or direct experience of God. It was all up here. So some friends in high school once invited me when I was a senior in high school to go to a Bible study. And uh, I was reluctant to because I was Orthodox and they weren't, but they were very good people and they were very dedicated Christians. So I decided to go. It was at a Baptist church that night in Wichita. Uh, and uh, the youth minister was talking about the split between the Catholic and Orthodox churches in the 11th century. Well, I thought I've heard this before. It's not going to really do that much for me. Um, it's just information on how the split was over. So after it was done, I talked to my friend Roger, and Roger had been uh, a friend of mine. I didn't know him very well, but he himself had quite a dramatic conversion. He had been uh, qu quite a 
big drug dealer in Wichita at those times and was involved in witchcraft and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but he became a Christian and changed 180 degrees, you know, went all the way around and was very zealous now for Christ. So I told him as we were talking after the, in the church in the basement there, I said, uh, Roger, I've done everything I know how to know Christ. I've repented and given my life to Christ. But honestly, if I were to die tonight, I don't know, I probably would go to hell. And he said, Brad, I've been thinking about you. And I think that you are a Christian. You have given your life to Christ, but you just don't know that God's forgiven you and that you've been saved by, from his, uh, by, his, by his power and grace. And he quoted 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on his name. You know that you may have eternal life. Well, when he said those words, it was like the Holy Spirit reached into my heart, just lifted all of that sin and guilt and self-alienation and all the all that was inside me, the spiritual thirst and hunger for God. And uh, I felt the presence of God in a way I never felt before. And it wasn't just a feeling, it was a reality. It was a indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It was a Christ abiding in me in a way that I had never known before. And so I turned to Roger, I wanted to make sure that this wasn't just a psychological change or anything like that, but that it was genuinely Christ, the risen Lord. So I turned to him, I said, Roger, I, th I said, I think the Holy Spirit just came in me. He said, he did? I said, yes, I'm, I, he did. And um, that night, it was on September 17th, 1971. I was 17 years old. And I can tell you, you know, not everybody can, not everybody has to. But for me, this is the way it was. Uh, it was sudden. It was dramatic. It was life-changing. Other people is gradual, and that's fine, too. So I don't want to make that as... You have to have this experience, but we do have to be committed. So that night we came home and I was driving in the car. It was a rainy night, Friday evening, about 9, 9.30. And they started singing songs that I never knew, you know, good hymns, good classical evangelical Protestant hymns. The only one I knew was part of the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's all I could say. And it was like I had gone from light to dark, from darkness to light, uh, like the man born blind. I, I, I could see. I was blind and I could see. So from that time on, I uh, began, I talked to my priest, Father Anthony Sabah, and he was very supportive and discipled me and helped me to understand my own Orthodox faith better. And, uh, and so from there, I went to college at which at uh, Friends University in Wichita and got a master, uh, bachelor's in religion and philosophy just because it was close. That's the only reason why I didn't know about it, the differences. Uh, but my friends, my evangelical friends, started asking me questions that I didn't have answers for about baptism and communion and such. So I began to be interested in how these people who believed a little differently than we did, how they God used them in my life. So uh, I began asking evangelical questions to or my priest and, and went back and forth in the go-between, giving the Orthodox answers to them and them to them went like that. Well, uh, long story short, I uh, went on for three master's degrees and the PhD. Uh, one of my master's was in European history, I mean, at New uh, Denver Seminary in New Testament literature and exegesis. 
<clears throat> and it was during there that I studied the intellectual tradition of evangelicalism. It was an evangelical school, school, and they had great education, both head and heart. And I spent three years there, including the extensive study of systematic theology and church history, Western church history. And it was while I studied the Nicene Creed, you know, the survey course in church history, that I realized that what I was saying in church was actually an outgrowth of the Arian controversy in the fourth century. So lights started going on. And uh, so after graduating from them, I did get dead. I really felt like the Lord wanted me to stay in the Orthodox Church. So I, I, uh, I did that. And uh, then I went on for a master's degree in European history at Wichita State. And I took courses in Russian history and traveled to the Soviet Union uh, and went to Moscow, Kiev, Leningrad, and Sigorsk during the dark days of communism. Uh, then I went to St. Vladimir Seminary, and there I went, uh, studied with very great people. I was privileged to study with the late Father John Meyendorf, Alexander Schmemann, Father Tom Hopko, and uh, Serge Verhofskoy in dogmatic theology. But the person who influenced me the most was Father Meyendorf, and he was very great. And so I followed him around like a puppy. I had always good, always asked questions. In fact, one time in class, Father John stopped the class after I asked a question and he said, you students, you should listen to Nassif. He said, uh, he ought never asked a bad question. And I always thought that was a compliment. So I, I always kind of treasured that comment from him. Well, after that, I went to Fordham University and studied with him. I was his last doctoral student and uh, studied theology and patristics, but also took courses at Union Seminary and Columbia University, Union with Dr. Richard Norris. So uh, from that point on, I then uh, felt like both sides, the Orthodox and Evangelicals, having studied in the institutions, neither one of them really understood each other very well. So I started an organization here in the United States called the Society for the Study of Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism. That was in 1991. And Dr. Jim Stamoulis, who wrote the book uh, Eastern Orthodox Mission Theology, was the dean at Wheaton College. And so Jim and I and several other people started this organization called the Society for the Study of Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism, Eastern Orthodoxy and Evangelicalism, SSEOE. And we met at the Billy Graham Center for about five years, and we had a number of distinguished evangelicals and orthodox there. The archives are now kept at Asbury Seminary in, uh, I believe it's in Wilmington, Kentucky. And you can listen to some of the exchanges that we had in those days. Uh, we had very good speakers, Harold O.J. Brown on the evangelical side, Grant Osborne, and then uh, on the, and we also had, uh, 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 eventually had J.I. Packer and the Orthodox, they had Father Ted Stylianopoulos. Uh, Father Stanley Herricus and others. So uh, that's the background to the writing of the book. Um, what this means is that I have spent a lot of years, uh, both intellectually and experientially, in both the Orthodox and Evangelical traditions. And I basically speak both languages. I'm theologically bilingual. And uh, so I felt like the Orthodox could benefit from the gifts of evangelicalism, and evangelicals could benefit from the gifts of orthodoxy. So that's how the book was written. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and I, as I was listening to you, I realized that my personal story, which I'm not going to go into, 
uh, has a lot of similarities and parallels. Um, and uh, your position and approach appeals to me because in many ways I, I share some of the same background as an Orthodox with evangelical detours, which I cherish and value um, and have incorporated in my own uh, life uh, as an Orthodox at this point. Um, now, um, moving now to the book proper, um, maybe can you give just a general overview of the structure of the book and the, the reason you have uh, structured it like that? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So I uh, ended up uh, introducing evangelicals to the Orthodox Church, and I have been an, uh, a, a lecturer and a visiting professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the missions department. I did courses on Eastern Orthodox theology and Regent College in Canada. Dr. Packer and I wrote, J.I. Packer did a team, team taught a course on orthodoxy and evangelicalism in dialogue, and that's available through their bookstore. Also at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Denver Seminary, and Fuller Seminary, where I was academic program for a few years, academic director for a few years. All right, so the book itself, though, is titled The Evangelical Theology of the Orthodox Church, and what I've done there is I have uh, broken the book up into two parts. The first part has to do with orthodoxy, how the gospel is understood in the orthodox tradition itself. Just the orthodox understanding. What is the gospel? How do we understand it? And then after we understand what the gospel is in three areas, and that would be um, dogma, spirituality, and liturgy, how the gospel is manifested there, then I, I conclude that section with a uh, chapter titled Nourishing the Gospel in Orthodox Parishes Today. And there I tie it all together. So if you only wanted to go read one chapter out of that book, that whole section, you might want to just go straight to the conclusion, although the other chapters are build are what it's based on. Then after we do, I define what the gospel is, I go and I ask the question, well, how does this gospel compare and contrast with Protestant evangelicalism? So part two, I've titled the event orthodoxy and evangelicalism in dialogue and the chapters are evangelicalism through orthodox eyes and in that chapter i really uh explore that's the it's the best thing i've been able to write and in terms of the, the serious theological reflection on the two and um so if you want and you'll have to have patience to read it because it isn't a, a quick read but it's a very thorough and hopefully thoughtful one. And then other chapters in there are tradition, Catholicity, and the mind of the church, the unity we seek, evangelicals, and the Eucharist. And then in part chapter four, the history of dialogues from 1990 to nine. now. And that in itself is a very interesting chapter because one of the best, if not the best, I would say the best dialogue has occurred through the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative. And for the last uh, over 10 years, there have been international meetings held between Orthodox churches and representatives and evangelicals. And the first meeting we had was actually in um, Albania under the sponsorship of uh, uh, Bishop Anastasios Yanolatos. 
So uh, maybe time there, Adrian, we could talk at some point about the LOI. Finally, then the conclusion on part two uh, is orthodox reflections on evangelicalism. And there I do a critique, an orthodox critique of evangelicalism, where I focus on history as the major issue. So uh, conclusion to part one, conclusion to part two will take you to where it all goes. Now, I should also say that I, the book is published by St. Vladimir's, and that was a great honor for me, because not only is the school my alma mater, but it's, it's a serious academic press. And I think that's what's very important, too. And, and as you mentioned, Father Andrew Louth, very distinguished modern Orthodox patristic scholar and historian, was kind enough to write the introduction to the book. And I have some book endorsements by uh, the Re Reverend uh, John McGuckin, who is a professor of orthodoxy at Oxford University, Billy Abraham, a Methodist scholar from uh, Baylor University, and Father Ted Stylianopoulos, from professor of New Testament and Orthodox spirituality from Holy Cross, Greek Orthodox Seminary. So they all got behind me in this book, and I'm that that was a great uh, and humbling thing that I experienced. If you buy the book, please know that I don't get a penny. I've assigned all financial benefits of the book to St. Vladimir's Press and the seminary for the benefit of the furtherance of Orthodox education in America. So I, I don't make any money on the book, um, but I do encourage you to buy it and hopefully share it with others that you think would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for this overview, <clears throat> Dr. Nassif. So maybe we can... <clears throat> Uh, dwell a bit on part one, uh, and then also then we will talk about those four uh, principles or or pillars of uh, the evangelicalism that you use, um, and we'll go one by one with it. But in part one, I found it fascinating how you um, try to, in a way, reconstruct um, the evangelicalism or the evangelical character of orthodoxy and that's an aspect of the orthodox church that is lost because it's so dense and rich right and you really have to take the time to distill and discern and unpack this denseness and i think one of the points you make is that sometimes believers and uh, lay people get lost into this denseness yeah. and we uh, they, we lose focus right it's it's because this denseness is also it has the effect of defocusing the gospel so to speak uh, in a good way right because the gospel is is in fact everywhere but sometimes people might say it's nowhere because nowhere because it's so much in everything right so we have a hard time coalescing and focusing this presence of the gospel in every aspect of the orthodox church as you uh, liturgical sacramental um, spirituality uh, and i think you 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 try to 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 retrieve to to refocus that uh, right you you show the scriptural character with this discussion of the of uh, saint john chrysostom right which uh, uh, you your dissertation was focused on on i think on the exegesis of saint john chrysostom then uh, with the philokalia uh, the in a way the spirit best collection of of writings of spirituality in the orthodox tradition um 
can you can you speak a little bit about that denseness but then also a denseness that sometimes is not there because it's diffuse yeah uh, and well that's that's exactly right because the goal of the book and uh, i think this is something i should really stress is is to nurture in readers a faithful commitment to making the gospel clear and central in uh, local Orthodox communities um, and to articulate that vision in a way that people inside and outside the church can easily understand. So that's my goal, to to make the gospel, to uh, encourage and nurture in readers a faithful commitment to make the gospel clear and central, central in every life-giving life action, action of the church, both so that those inside and outside can easily understand it. Um, I think the book will be useful in adult study groups or catechism classes. Certain chapters might be assigned and for seekers um, who are interested to know more about the church. Uh, I've come to the belief that authentic Christian experience flourishes best in the Orthodox Church when the gospel is faithfully kept central in the entire life of a local parish, in its preaching, in its explanation of the liturgical rites, in its sacraments, in its missionary outreach and ed educational curricula, um, the gospel needs to be kept clear. And it's to that end that the desired outcomes of my book are to stimulate in readers a much greater recognition of the need to emphasize that gospel as the core message of Orthodox Christianity. It's urgently needed. Even though, as you said, Adrian, it's formally there, our churches don't always see it. But if they do, our churches can grow much stronger when the gospel is consciously recognized as the core of our faith. And that's what I try to show in part one, in its dogma, in its doctrine, uh, spirituality, and sacramental life. And that's why, in fact, I dedicate the book to every uh, bishop, priest, deacon, monk, layperson who strives to keep the gospel clear and central in every life-giving action of the church. I would also say that scholars, who uh, Orthodox scholars uh, working on this uh, in the church's theology, too often they become, they, they lose the forest for the trees. Uh, you know, there's a place for technical study between, you know, Neoplaton, Neoplatonic spirituality and the church fathers and all the details that go into uh, terminological and theological relationships there. But what I find lacking, even among scholars, is the big picture. Somehow they fail to see or fail to relate the details of their scholarship to the larger scopos or scopos of scripture, the larger purpose of it, which is the good news of the kingdom of God. So uh, we can easily lose this clarity uh, in the church by becoming uh, more occupied, turning theology simply into an academic discipline and not relating it practically to the life of the church. And uh, we also can lose it because uh, as you know, we get used, we're so familiar with the liturgy, that people that attend the liturgy might do what I did as I was growing up. I heard everything, and and you know everything was run together, the the prayers and the liturgies and the rites and the services and the parts of the services. I I was kept trying to say, well, I see Jesus, but I don't see exactly where He wants me to go, and so I thought that um, 
that by focusing on these things, the the spirituality and the dogmas and the um, uh, liturgical life, uh, Orthodox people can can see it. So the term evangelical, when I use it in an, in an Orthodox sense, I am not referring to this complex movement known as Protestant evangelicalism. Uh, a measure of theological overlap is inevitable when we discuss classical Christian faith. Uh, but when I'm using the term evangelical, I'm using it in not in the Protestant sense when it refers to orthodoxy, but simply as the gospel. And uh, perhaps it's providential that when I was ordained a, a deacon, a subdeacon and a deacon, uh, last August a deacon, um, I had taken the name or had been given the name Gabriel, which means the bearer of good news, mm -hmm. the bearer of good news. So I'm, I'm, I love that mm -hmm. that angel that he was. He announced the good mm -hmm. news to Mary, and so mm -hmm. that's, that's now the gospel though. And let me just quote something about. Mm -hmm. Start off by asking, what is the gospel? And I uh, and I say on page fourteen, it is from all this that I have come to believe that authentic Christian experience flourishes best in the Orthodox Church when the gospel is faithfully kept central in the entire life of a local parish, in its preaching, liturgical rites, sacraments, missions, mm -hmm. and educational curricula. And then I quote Father, I mean, yes, Father Ted Stylianopoulos in a fantastic book he wrote titled The Apostolic Gospel. It's very short, but very compact. And I, I don't try to explain all that the gospel is, but this is what he says in his book that I quote from, Father Ted. He says, the term evangelical is a perfectly good word for the quality of life, beliefs, and conduct of the early Christians who were inspired by the truth and the power of the apostolic gospel. One can speak of the, quote, evangelical ethos, end quote, of the authors of the New Testament writings or the, quote, evangelical spirit of early Christians or the, quote, evangelical nature of the early church, or even, quote, the evangelical character of the New Testament itself. Uh, any aspect of Christian life and theology with the essential connection to the gospel may be called evangelical. Mm -hmm. So the gospel is not so much about theological concepts or moral values or religious duties or the celebration of tradition, although it embraces and illuminates all these, it is about God's great saving acts in Christ, the Spirit, and the Church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I may add to <clears throat> your quotation from the book, I think there's two other passages that I find that I think summarize very much um, this attempt of to retrieve the evangelical character or the evangelical core mm -hmm. of uh, the Orthodox faith, uh, and that passage is on 150, page 150 in the book, um, <clears throat> um, where you um, where you say um, the the gospel that. So on page 150, I note about a quarter of the way down, the gospel, not quote orthodoxy and the in the abstract, is the church's most effective spiritual weapon to reverse the spiritual lethargy and transform parish life. A renewed concentration on the gospel empowered by the spirit does not imply a downplaying of participation in the liturgy, sacraments, and prayer 
on the contrary, to concentrate on the gospel is to rediscover what is already there in the divine liturgy, the Nicene Creed, hymns, prayers, sacraments, icons, dogmas, and spiritual texts of the church. It's not a matter of innovating or importing theology from Protestant evangelicalism or any other tradition as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Orthodoxy has its own evangelical identity that must be recovered based on the scriptures and the apostolic tradition of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. So, so you, you're advocating for, uh, if I may use the word, re-evangelization within the Orthodox Church or a refocus a recovery. on the a recovery um, uh, as as a form of renewal, right? Uh, and 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 in in. So how would that be done? Through education, through teaching, preaching? Um, yes. Um, so if we look at um, if we look at this, uh, there, especially here in the in the uh, conclusion, I noted I note um, that um, identify what the gospel is, and then on page one forty nine. I asked the question, how, how might the transforming power of the gospel be nourished in Orthodox parishes today? And here I uh, lived, lived essentially on page 151 in the middle. There are three things that I focus on and credit belongs to Father Ted for these words. I developed them a little differently, but here's what, he, what they are. Treasure, gift, and response. Uh, the treasure of the gospel cannot be effective, I note, in the lives of others if it is not brought out into full view so that its beauty and power may be released by God's grace. Churches will thrive the most when they treasure the gospel and keep the main thing the main thing. So that's number one, keeping the main thing the main thing. What is the main thing? The gospel. Uh, a second emphasis, a second way to bring this about is to, is for on page 152, the second emphasis that may facilitate church renewal is for leaders to stress the good news as a gift. St. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So, in fact, at the in the divine liturgy itself, the priest says, thine own of thine own we offer unto you on behalf of all and for all. And so I think if we really focus on the gospel as a gift, uh, instead of an obligation, because that's what we generally do, we, we emphasize in our preaching and teaching that we're obligated uh, to do this and do that for God. And so we oftentimes obey Christ out of a feeling of guilt or feeling of I have to, rather than a feeling of gratitude and of love for what God has done. And so then that's why I emphasize salvation is a gift. And then the third emphasis that will renew, bring renewal in the church is uh, that the gospel, when we talk about it, we must also stress the need for people to respond. So response mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. The very nature of the gift if somebody offers you a gift, you have to do something with it. You don't just look at it and say, oh, I agree, that's a nice gift. Mm -hmm. You either take it or you don't. And uh, the gospel, 
needs to be presented that way. It's, it's not fully presented unless it's accompanied by calling people to personally respond to the good news that's been given in repentance mm -hmm. and faith. And people, I believe, really do. And this is a big thing with me. I, I really think that people need to be asked in our church from time to time, even though they've been baptized and even though they're going to church, mm -hmm. they need to be asked where they stand in relation to Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what Jesus did. You know, mm -hmm. He asked Peter, do you believe? And Peter mm -hmm. said, and, and Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And so we have to we have to really do that uh, and not assume that everybody that goes to church is a really dedicated Christian. Now, where this can happen is in a lot of places. It can happen at the pulpit through preaching. And I'm not saying that every Sunday ought to be an evangelistic sermon or anything like that. I'm saying to integrate it wisely throughout your ministry as a priest, a bishop, a, mom, a, a lay person, a leader, any, whatever you do in church to help the church, integrate the call for personal commitment to Christ. So it can be done in preaching. It can be done in the Sunday school classrooms, uh, all across the age groups. It can be done in the priest goes to the hospital and he's visiting the sick. It can be done when he's taking confession <laughs> and, and, and ask the person instead of right away saying, do this or do that. Do they have this problem or that, that problem? Let's start at the beginning, John. Let's start at the beginning. I know you've been coming to church here for a long time, but let me, uh, let, me, let me just ask you. I hope you won't mind because this is really what the church wants us to do. Have you, have you really made a personal commitment to the church's faith and to not just the church's faith, but have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ? Have you decided to do what Jesus said? Take up your mm -hmm. cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. And then explore that with them. Help them. In other words, start with the start where Jesus began at the mm -hmm. beginning. And what's the beginning? Mm -hmm. Repent, for the mm -hmm. kingdom of heaven is at hand. So mm -hmm. it's not easy. This is not, I mean, it's not hard. This isn't rock and, rocket science. It's the ABCs of the gospel. But I, that's where the problems are. We, we often want to talk about the LMNO or P's or the XYZ's, and we get into great lofty theology. And there's a, there is a place for that. Please don't misunderstand. I myself, I mean, look at what I've written and done. Of course it is. But at the same time, we really need to stress the basics over and mm -hmm. over again. Because if the foundation is cracked, the ceiling will get cracked. And I think that's where we're at in our churches today. And that's why so many nominal Orthodox people like myself, where you grew up in the church religious but lost, you might be Arabic in heritage or Russian or Serbian or Bulgarian or Greek or what have you. And that's your that's your faith, that's your Orthodox because of that. So what one of the most urgent needs in the Orthodox world today is the need for internal evangelism. We need to evangelize our people all over again. And so what if they've heard it before? So what if they've been, mm -hmm. you know, say, oh, I've been baptized? Well, good. Mm -hmm. Let's just get the many people that aren't there. If you'll just look at the statistics in America, the number of people that actually are participating in a lively way is very small. We're less than 1%. In the old countries of and to us, the old countries of Russia and the Middle East and so forth, uh, you have a lot of nominal Christianity, but are cultural Christians. 
So my burden in this book is that people will read it and go back to the basics and integrate the gospel in every possible way. Again, not to have, you know, altar calls, although I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You can do whatever you feel is appropriate. But And we don't turn the church into an always an evangelistic, all the time, every Sunday kind of thing. I'm not saying that. But I am saying it does need to be a vital part of Orthodox ministry. As St. Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And <clears throat> amen to anything you said. Uh, the, uh, and the other aspect of that, um, uh, let's say, convenient comfortable laxness is the moral laxness there is a, a lack of emphasis on ethics in orthodoxy right mm -hmm. unfortunately yeah. Yeah. again that's another aspect that gets lost uh, because of the of uh, of maybe thinking well we got this wonderful spirituality and all this sublime loftiness so uh, we we focus on that for good reason but then we sometimes are not very good or keen on the basics on don't steal don't lie uh, and we see that in the cultures of uh, of the, in the old culture so to speak eastern europe and um, you know uh, um, you wonder uh, you, why can you not be both mystical and ethical or maybe right. be ethical before you become mystical mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be an either or but the two are deeply connected and that connection sometimes is lost or not very much emphasized uh, that uh, ethics and morality and the, let's say the nitty-gritty of faith are a important basis and prequel to deification uh, you cannot start the process of deification and and skip <laughs> the boring ethics uh, or, um, and um, one I think a very important another passage that you kind of uh, that somehow summarizes a lot of what you say page 239 uh, I'm just going to quickly read it it is possible for our young people to attend church take communion venerate the icons and end up religious but lost just as I was when I was a young man it is not without reason that the book of the gospels rests on the center of the altar in every orthodox church around the world and apparently it's being brought out before the liturgy for veneration right uh, during uh, orthros uh, this liturgical symbolism tells us if we truly want to be people of the gospel we will need to constantly recover the personal and relational aspects of the god in every life giving action of the church before our evangelical brothers and sisters and listen to the simplicity of their message we will rediscover the true meaning of our own faith and in the process bring them with us into the fullness of the orthodox church so uh, maybe this passage can be a, a segue to the next to the let's say the dialogical part of the book uh, mm. and and it's fascinating that you think the premise to a real dialogue is for the orthodox to retrieve their own uh evangel evangelical core and uh, once we we do that, uh, uh, and in a way that's not, it's, I think the way you speak, it's not pro something programmatic. It's not a big, it's something personal. Each and every Orthodox Christian has to do that, uh, uh, as you say, at the level of their everyday life. Now, 
and and that's the premise for uh, a dialogue with the evangelicals in a way uh, showing well the, the orthodox church is evangelical uh, if uh, and the core of the church is not necessarily is is both evangelicalism and orthodoxy correctness of belief now moving to the dialogical part i think you yeah. uh, you start because the, the even the the notion the concept of evangelicals is so broad broad and diffuse and you clarify that and i think it's it has become in the recent five ten years even more diffuse and mm. sometimes confusing uh, you really don't know who are the evangelicals because there is a real diversity among evangelicals mm. uh, both theological and cultural and also the background their background their denominational background um, uh, you 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 put on the table four characteristics uh, that you derive from uh, uh, the theologian Babington. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's, can you, let's enumerate them and then talk about each one um, as uh, as a dialogue, uh, as, as a point of uh, discussion between Orthodox and Evangelicals. <clears throat> yeah, I'll be happy to. And this is very important because when you go to compare Orthodoxy with Evangelicalism, you have to ask yourself, uh, what is evangelicalism itself? And there are evangelical historians that <clears throat> don't always give the same definition. <clears throat> evangelical, the term itself in the Protestant context can be a slippery term. Uh, you have people, great historians, evangelical historians, Mark Knoll, um, George Marsden, and others that will ask the question, what is evangelicalism and when did it begin? And this is an important question before we engage in a dialogue with evangelicals, we have to say, what do you mean by the term evangelical? So what I did in this chapter is I adopted a, one, a definition by David Bebbington, who is a noted British uh, scholar of evangelicalism, and he lists four markers that identify an evangelical. And they are uh, the Bible as the word of God, the centrality of the cross, and um, uh, conversion, and the need for missionary evangelistic outreach, these four things. And so on page 193, the, the, the chapter that you'll get the most heavy and the most in-depth comparison that I'm able to do on the two traditions is that chapter titled Evangelicalism Through Orthodox Eyes. So the first one, the first <clears throat> marker, I should say, the first mark of evangelicalism begins with the Bible as the word of God. So let's start with that on page 168. Uh, evangelical identity number one, Bebbington calls this crucicentrism. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Christ, Jesus, God provided a way for the forgiveness of my sins. So... Uh, at this point, as a general observation, orthodox soteriology differs from evangelical theology uh, in, in the way it is connected with uh, the cross itself and the incarnation and the implications of the incarnation. Now, the first thing I should say, and there's so much here to say, is that we both agree, both sides agree on the centrality of the incarnation and the uh, cross for the forgiveness of our sins. 
Now, the problem comes when we try to define the nature of salvation itself on the cross. And here the, the reformers emphasize justification by faith as the critical mark. And uh, so the question then is, how does orthodoxy address the question of justification by faith? Um, in the classical sense, uh, justification was seen as a forensic aspect, a uh, declaration of righteousness, rather the impartation of righteousness. And so uh, it becomes a forensic concept, a very external one. Uh, now, we haven't, the Orthodox have not really discussed it justification in quite those terms not that it's against it i would argue that it's not you can't say that orthodoxy is against the forensic but rather the emphasis is not on the forensic uh, what we find in fact in the lutheran school lutheran tradition there has been in modern times a renewal of lutheran theology which sees his his understanding of salvation not only in terms of justification as a forensic concept, but also as deification. So there's a whole school, the Helsinki School uh, of Lutheranism, that has seen justification in the context of deification. So for us, that's a bridge. And if properly understood, I think that this old problem between Protestants and Catholics that has been carried over to the Orthodox can perhaps be bridged uh, through the through the doctrine of deification. Now there are different uh, theologies of the of uh, the atonement, which I don't know if you want to get into all of that here. But I would only yeah. say that the Church has, you know, you have to say where is heresy? Where is heresy? where orthodoxy has not been clearly uh, defined. So if we ask the question, you know, um, does is it, a, is it a heresy to believe in substitutionary atonement, as uh, the evangelicals very often emphasize? Uh, well, there's, there's freedom of opinion. The Nicene Creed says, who was crucified for us and for our salvation, mm -hmm. but it doesn't say how it happened. Mm -hmm. So there's room for a breadth of mm -hmm. conversation on this, and I don't think we need to make mm -hmm. our differences rise or fall mm -hmm. on the nature of that. Mm -hmm. uh, we can have a variety of views and still be within the tradition. Mm -hmm. So that's the first point. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I think before we move to the second, right, we started, we started with uh, the importance of Christ. I th- uh, right? And I think there is a, a um, you, you use a very use, you, you create a very useful uh, distinction between, let's say, orthodox Christological maximalism yeah. or, and, and evangelical Christological minimalism. And we will cite a passage to that effect because uh, adding to what you said, um, and I think as if I read you correctly, you say that the orthodox understanding of Christology includes what evangelicals say about the role of Christ, doesn't exclude that. Uh, uh, So so there are aspects of the orthodox teaching about the role of Christ that would entail an understanding of uh, justification. Now, on the other hand, uh, and as you mentioned that too, uh, the orthodox have always been shy or reserved when it comes to definitions right and and i think that's a methodological and cultural difference between evangelicals and orthodox uh, on the other hand from the be- from it, from its very beginning protestantism has been obsessed with definitions right it, it has uh become it has centered itself on the, the dogmatic purity dogmatic and 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 trying to to polish and 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 make that uh, the clarity and i'm not saying that's something bad but um, uh, it, it, there is a difference with the orthodox church orthodox church has done that but it's always been concerned to not limit and 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 the, the faith to definitions, right? The you know big debate between Gregory Greg, uh, the Gregory Palamas, right, and and Barlam. It's all about that, and and I think that's a very important methodological um, uh, difference. Uh, um, now, okay, okay. On page one eighty eight of the book, I note that our greatest differences, therefore, can be seen in the tensions that arise between evangelicalism and orthodoxy over what could be described as a Christological minimalism versus Christological maximalism. And um, what I mean by this is that, for example, we agree on the Chalcedonian definition that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, two natures in one person. But the Orthodox tradition has developed that theological uh, commitment in a much more maximalistic way than evangelicals have done. Uh, for example, in our Christology, St. Cyril of Alexandria, you, uh, based upon uh, a, a solid Christology, develops his Eucharistic theology based upon the incarnation. And his point is that if we don't have our, uh, a natural outgrowth of this union between divinity and humanity, carries over in the way in which we conceive of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the deification that is given to the believer in the Eucharist. And so this is an area in which evangelicals have not developed their theology very well uh, as it relates as uh, in the relation between Christology and sacramental theology, particularly Eucharistic theology. Another area of maximalism versus minimalism is in the doctrine of the church, where 
evangelicals uh, stress the invisible nature of the Christian church, whereas orthodoxy would embrace that, but also would stress the visibility of the church. Um, evangelicals, what they like to do with regard to tradition is they like to look at the past and they like to just look at it more or less like a library and they take what they like and leave what they don't with rather than seeing it more as an organic unity. So in the case of the Chalcedonian definition or even the Nicene Creed, they may say, yes, we believe in the Trinity. Yes, we believe in Christology. Thank you for the, you know, we agree with those doctrines, but we don't, we reject the church that confessed them. And so there's this, uh, uh, this minimalization of the nature of the church itself, the visibility, they seem to forget that in the Nicene Creed, when it says, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, that uh, that creed is referring to concrete, visible Eucharistic communities. It's not the church in the broad visible sense uh, alone. It's uh, especially those local Orthodox communities that confess that creed. So what they do is like they tend to cut off the doctrine from the church which affirmed it. And it's like, I like to compare it to a beautiful flower where, you know, they, they, they'll take, take the some of the doctrinal part, the stem could be the doctrine. Okay, they'll take that, but they leave off where the doctrine goes in terms of the beautiful flower. And what is that flower? It's worship and spiritual life and so forth. Yeah, I mean, just sticking with your analogy, which is, is great, if they take the stem, they don't want the roots that produce, right? The, 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 the difficulty, the, let's say, the, the dirty work of that process, right. uh, historical, spiritual, practical, that has led the to that distillation of the dogma of the teaching and and uh, so they take only the stem and also the flower is is the is only only parts of the flower are, are taken um yeah that's yeah. A, that's a beautiful analogy <clears throat> i would also add that we could apply that same problem and the of the same methodological difference to the theology of the icons uh, iconography is intimately, again, related to Chalcedonian Christology, yet evangelicals really don't draw out those theological implications of Chalcedon for the defense of the icons. Instead, uh, they seem to uh, disconnect them. So it's, again, a question of minimalism versus maximalism. Mm -hmm. The church's Christology gives birth to the iconography as in a as the visual gospel mm -hmm. the icons are the visual gospel of the church how are they the visual gospel they bear testimony to the word made flesh mm -hmm. that's gospel so mm -hmm. uh, here the church has beautifully developed the relationship between christology and christian art and iconography and spirituality in a way that evangelicalism hasn't um, now you do find, in fairness to evangelicals, there are there has been quite a change, a positive change in the last few decades, especially with evangelical musicians and uh, specialists mm -hmm. uh, such as Jeremy Begbie, 
who has done a lot in in uh, in affirming this very orthodox principle. So there are very important people in evangelicalism that have moved the movement and helped the movement to mature. Mm. And I, so I, I think that in fairness, we have to give credit to the changes that we've seen there and and, mm -hmm. and the direction that they've gone. Mm -hmm. Before moving to the aspect of scripture, I'd like to finish uh, reading that passage that you started, right? Because I think it's cool. It, it kind of captures it very nice, right? Okay. That, yeah, maybe starting for the fathers of the Eastern Church, the incarnation became. Uh, I'll just read it, became yeah. the medium of theological integration in all its rich complexity. The mystery of the incarnation required a theological method that integrated the whole of Christian truth and spiritual experience in the person of Jesus Christ. We have already sketched how this was done with, when the fathers integrated Christology and soteriology with its corollaries of Eucharistic theology and good works. Further implications of this cosmic event were drawn out for the Christian understanding of creation, iconography, the nobility of God, and the role of the body in prayer. Literally, all creation was believed to be affected by the salvation wrought by the incarnate Lord. And therefore, everything material now carries with it the potential to be restored. The goodness of created... Um, matter has been sanctified through the word, word made flesh and thus became a vehicle of saving grace through the church's physical sacraments by its audible proclamation of the gospel, by pen and parchment of the written word, by the visible witness of the church's art, the blessings, blessing of the physical body in prayer, as well as in the early routines of every life. So this is a full-fledged description of this maximalism that you <clears throat> uh, talk about. Uh, and uh, uh, that evangelicals lost in many ways or, narrow, or radically narrowed it uh, by uh, a more minimalist understanding of the, of the uh, uh, role of Christ. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, now, let's move to the second aspect, the scripture. Um, and if you want to say a few words about that. Yeah. Um, um, okay. So the second uh, definition that evangelical of evangelicalism by Bebbington, evangelical identity number two, page 193 and following, is biblicism that is the bible is the inspired word of god to whatever degree and is to be taken literally word for word that's how he defined one of the marks of an evangelical now here we enter into the real thorny issue of the relationship between scripture and tradition and how uh, to evaluate them so i think the first thing that we need to say is that uh protestantism in general has in itself has not itself agreed on what sola scriptura refers to. Um, if you're looking at the Lutheran tradition, uh, you have a very different view than what you would find in the Anabaptist tradition. The Lutheran understanding and the Calvinist understanding of scripture, as I understand Lutheranism and Calvinism, would be that the Bible uh, has the supreme authority over every council or creed or papal authority that when all is said and done, the Bible uh, is the judge of church tradition and not the other way around. Uh, 
Luther was very favorable of the, he was very respectful of tradition and the fathers, the Nicene Creed and many of the church fathers, but he felt that when they contradicted uh, the teach clear, what he believed was the clear teaching of scripture, scripture one and the fathers or creeds or whatever it was would lose. Now you take that comparison, that's much more close, that would be much closer to the way the Orthodox would conceive the relationship, although not identically. But if you look at the Anabaptist tradition, you have a very different understanding of the relation between scripture and tradition. And much of evangelicalism today is representative of the Anabaptist tradition, although that's changing. In the Anabaptist tradition, basically, they say fooey on tradition. We don't need it. In fact, tradition is the problem. And they point to such things as the Constantinian settlement and, and how the what they believe, how the church messed up the early primitive Christian doctrine. And so the way they treat history in the 16th century and, and their children do today is they basically do an end run around 2,000 years of Christian history and say, well, just give me the Bible and fooey on the rest of this stuff, history and the fathers and the creeds and the councils. Just give me the Bible. So what we're faced with is orthodox is what kind of you know how are, how do we what are we to compare ourselves with when it comes to sola scriptura in the protestant tradition is it more lutheran or anabaptist so in that light uh as i say i think the lutheran has much more to offer but um and there's much more agreement i would say I, in fact, I wrote a whole chapter on this subject of the role of the, the nature of authority in the Orthodox tradition, which is distinct from this particular book. In the footnotes, I note it in uh, another book. Uh, but let me go to page one, page 203, and I'd like to quote and comment toward the bottom there. Um, Whether they are aware of it or not, I say, when evangelicals give assent to the canonical texts, they are simultaneously validating the church's tradition as an authoritative norm of canonicity, just as it has actually functioned within the life of the Orthodox Church itself. A consistent application of the Anabaptist meaning of sola scriptura would mean to permit individual believers the freedom to include or exclude any book of the Bible they felt led by the Spirit to remove. So what I'm saying here is that if you really, you know, uh, with the Anabaptist approach, if they felt like the book of James should be thrown out and the Spirit led them to do that, they believe they would have the right. And this is a problem for us. I go on to say it also abducts the Bible, this approach does, uh, abducts the Bible from the very church that acknowledged the canon by saying, in effect, Thank you, early church, for recognizing which books belong to the Bible. Now give it here, and I'll tell you what it all means and how wrong you have been in interpreting it. The irony of this disdain is that evangelicals rely on the church's authoritative charismatic judgment <clears throat> excuse me, on the colossal issue of canonicity, but not on its consensual agreement on fundamental matters of historic interpretation, such as the sacramental meaning of baptism, and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. However differently, that real presence was defined by the Latin and Greek traditions. In contrast to non-sacramental forms of Protestant evangelicalism, the Orthodox perspective is much is more internally consistent. To accept the books of the canon is also to accept the ongoing spirit-led authority 
of the church's tradition, which recognizes, interprets, worships, and corrects itself by the witness of Holy Scripture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And just before that, right, you, you, you point out that the integration, right, the unbreakable unity between church, Bible, and holy tradition, right, how in, in fact it's impossible to, to detach them from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how, how and the organic unity between these, uh, these three. Um, uh, and I think there is a, <clears throat> a trend uh, now in within the evangelicals, right, uh, uh, ev- American evangelicalism to retrieve um, aspects of tradition or to reconstruct um, a, a sense of continuity, right? They realize that because of historical biblical criticism, because of uh, cultural developments, cultures, or all of that, uh, they've, uh, they are now on a very fra- fragile ground, right? Or another analogy would be that, you know, you, you, there is the big river. The big river is dirty, a lot of debris. They say, no, we don't want to be in the big river. Let's find a little stream that is clear. Mm-hmm. So we can drink of it. But then you, you create smaller and smaller streams and eventually they dry out right and then you say okay let's go back maybe to the big river maybe it ain't so bad (laughs) we'll use some purifiers but so it's it's interesting what's happening now it's it's an attempt to retrieve there's a lot of conferences in the church fathers Um, there's attempts to you know bring back aspects of worship uh, you know, saying the creed, uh, for example. And on the one hand, these attempts are salutary, right? Uh, nevertheless, one wonders how effective they can be if we use the analogy of the streams that are moving away from the uh, big river. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about yeah, I think that I think you're quite right. The evangelicals are are moving back to the big stream, and in very significant ways. <clears throat> I'm thinking, in particular, in the area of hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics. You have uh, a few. Well, you have a number of people now, and I'm thinking of people like Kevin Van Hooser in the evangelical world. Uh, Scott McKnight, um, even uh, certainly Hans Borsma, these are modern uh, evangelical writers, and they are emphasizing the need in one way or another for a theological interpretation of scripture that does honor to the big river that you, you referred to, the great tradition. And so uh, Van, people like Van Hooser are doing it from a hermeneutical perspective, uh, on uh, focusing on the theological interpretation. Uh, Scott McKnight actually uh, and Hans Borsma had a dialogue in two books. And uh, I have it one second here. Okay. So, so there's an interesting dialogue between New Testament, prominent New Testament professor uh, and former colleague of mine. And, and uh, Scott McKnight uh, wrote a book on 
what biblical scholars wish theologians knew. And then mm -hmm. Hans Borma, Borsma wrote the other book, What Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. And it's a dialogue between theology and exegesis. Mm -hmm. And so you have this very uh, fruitful conversation going on. And much credit goes to Hans Borsma for his wonderful books on this. In fact, he had a, a very interesting title to a book on the sacramentality of scripture. I forgot the exact title, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what he does is he talks about the sacramental nature of scripture and the need for a spiritual interpretation and that the uh, patristic ways of interpreting the Bible are still very valid ways of doing so. So when it comes to the relation of scripture and tradition today, uh, Orthodox and evangelical dialogue, we really are coming much closer than ever before in mm -hmm. this conversation. So I'm very optimistic when mm -hmm. you've got people of such high caliber as those two men mm -hmm. doing, uh, you know, bringing the church closer to really what I would say is an orthodox understanding. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very promising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, the final point I would make is that I find personally one of the most difficult things to do is to describe the meaning and the nature of tradition to somebody that's outside the Orthodox Church, especially evangelicals. If you, if you have, if I, whenever I try to describe what it is, you have to talk about church history, lit liturgy, canons, church canonical tradition, iconography, and you have to say, but it's too much. How can you Let do that? let alone practice, right? The ascetical spiritual practice, which yeah. is even hard to grasp, right? How, right? Please go ahead. Yeah. So the, all of that goes into tradition. And uh, it's one of the most difficult concepts to communicate mm -hmm. uh, as an Orthodox, because our view of authority is not papal, we don't believe that all roads lead to Rome, as even though we respect the Pope and rec can recognize him for his uh, his uh, past, you know, his 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 uh, his Rome's bishop, bishop of Rome, bishop, right, and um, and we can uh, you know we can do that, but the authority doesn't go back to the Pope. The authority doesn't go back to the individual interpreter, as many of the Protestants would say. So where are we? I remember Father John Meyendorf. I go back. I had a whole a course with him once at school in St. Vladimir's, and the whole course was titled. I had two courses with him, actually. One was titled Tradition in the Early Church, and the other one was Authority in the Early Church. Can you imagine whole, two whole semesters on this subject, one of tradition, mm -hmm. one of authority, and then trying to explain that in a concise way to somebody else? Well, it's, <laughs> it's not possible, but what I what he came across came what he emphasized was that ultimately God is the final authority, if we put it that way. But uh, to reduce authority to either the Pope or a book is to uh, or a person or a person. Yeah, it's not um, it, it's not adequate, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, how do you explain that? Well, then it goes back to the question of the authority of the councils and the reception of the councils. How do you know a council is authentically uh, a, a, an ecumenical mm -hmm. one? 
Is it by the number of people that attended? Is it by, uh, you know, self-proclamation and so forth. So mm-hmm. this is a, a separate subject. It's very difficult to deal with. We can't mm-hmm. deal with it here, mm-hmm. but um, it does merit at least mm-hmm. an acknowledgement of mm-hmm. where it stands and also the hope that things are really moving in a much better direction on this topic but in between Orthodox and Evangelical. Mm-hmm. So. I and think, I think they, they are, right? I think that uh, what we see in America, at least, is a deep interest of evangelicals in rediscovering uh, the the breadth uh, of the tradition and, and sometimes picking and choosing and, well, but it's it's a good in direction. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's uh, be, because we've to- been talking for a while, a very rich conversation. Um, before we end, maybe can you talk briefly and moving towards conclusions about the last two, the easy ones, <laughs> the, the easy ones to talk about, the hard ones to put into practice, probably the two other aspects uh, of evangelicals uh, principles. Yeah. So one conversion is- and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emphasis on conversion and the emphasis on uh, mission work. So one of the big uh, markers of evangelicalism, the third one by Bebbington, is this emphasis on conversion theology and the importance of personal faith in Christ. And uh, this is what unites evangelicals. They're united by a common experience known as the new birth, being born again, and they are united also by a common core of uh, elementary points of faith. We've already talked about some of the elementary points of faith, but the conversion theology and what they speak about is simply the need for personal relationship with Christ and personal repentance. And they emphasize, as Billy Graham did, the need to be born again. Now, in the old days, when Graham was alive, he had a beautiful his approach to evangelism was welcomed, actually, as you maybe I don't know if you were young enough to see if you were alive back then, but he uh, he had an evangelistic campaign throughout Romania. As in well. my hometown, in my hometown, Timisoara. Was, was it really? Were you? Yeah, I was seven years old. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you were a little boy. Well, there and in Russia, the Patriarch of Russia, Moscow, uh, invited and accompanied him. On, on evangelistic crusades, and they were broadcast on television. He had a theology or an, a, a philosophy of evangelism, what he called cooperative evangelism. And uh, what he did was he believed that it was that he, he would partner with local churches in the region that he went and had an agreement that if anybody from their own local churches came to his campaigns and accepted Christ and went forward in their in their uh, altar calls, that he would then allow them and would lead them back into their own local churches. So that's what we call by, that's what he meant by cooperative evangelism. So in practical terms, this meant that when he preached the gospel in Romania or Russia, people that Romanian Orthodox that came forward, he would funnel them back into Orthodox churches for discipleship. Now, I think we should I, I mean, people can disagree with me, and, and I still respect them for it, but I don't see any problem with that uh, if we did it together with evangelicals. Why can't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all agree on the importance of the cross, 
and that Christ died for our sins and, then, and that he rose again from the dead, we agree on these important things. That's what sets us apart from liberal Protestantism today. So we have a good dialogue. We have a good partner in, in mm-hmm. evangelicals if they are willing to partner with us. Mm-hmm. And they may not be. But I would, and I would mm-hmm. preach, and I would like to preach, and then bring those into the Orthodox faith mm-hmm. and uh, disciple them. So I think this is a viable option for us today in working together. Now, the other thing I would say in working together is what I had maybe mentioned earlier. It's called the LOI or the Lausanne Orthodox Initiative. And this was started maybe, I think, in 2011 by the Lausanne Committee. uh, And that was formed by Billy Graham many years ago. And it's a huge evangelical agency. I think it's located in Switzerland. And... um, they have all kinds of outreach around the world in South America and, and <laughs> uh, Catholic countries and other places. Well, they started the dialogue, um, and it was started by, and it's still supervised by, a Coptic bishop, Bishop Angelos, in London, a, 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 um, uh, of a, a Coptic bishop, and then uh, a, an evangelical uh, woman, I forgot her name, they both went together in Egypt to help the poor. And they both, I think, if I got mm-hmm. the story straight, they realized that, you know, we had so much in common. Let's let's talk more. The intention is not to convert one to the other. The intention <laughs> is to work together knowing that we're going to be different. But there's such a strong point of unity between us. Let's see how we can work together to carry out the mission mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ in the world. Mm-hmm. So their first meeting was held uh, an international meeting by 60 theologians, handpicked senior scholars mm-hmm. from the evangelical and orthodox world, and they met in Albania under Anastasios Yanulatos, and Nathan Hoppe was our was working with him and helped organize it. We had people mm-hmm. there from from Russia, Romania, Egypt, uh, mm-hmm. Lebanon, Syria, Bulgaria, uh, and uh, Serbia top people, bishops and Mm -hmm. theologians, missiologists. Mm -hmm. And uh, since that time, they've met in other parts of the world uh, as well. And they're having one meeting again. If you go to www.loimission.net, you will be absolutely amazed to see the fantastic work being done today. Mm -hmm. loimission.net. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's all there with photographs and mm-hmm. major church leaders. So anybody interested in Orthodox evangelical relationships must go to that. And the leader, mm-hmm. actually now the convener, is an Orthodox man who's a brilliant scholar on Ethiopian Orthodoxy. His name is Ralph Lee, Dr. Ralph Lee. He uh, was an evangelical that had been associated with the Navigators and then converted to the, um, or, became, or I don't like to use the word converted because it refers to spiritual birth, but he had a theological um, mm-hmm. change to the Coptic, uh, to the Ethiopian church, and he's a brilliant scholar. He's leading mm-hmm. it now and mm-hmm. convening it. And, mm-hmm. there's, and, ni- and next year, 2024, the Lausanne, uh, the entire Lausanne movement is having a worldwide international meeting in Korea. And uh, I've been invited to as a special guest for them, as well as other uh, people. So this is a huge thing. And so when it comes to carrying out the Great Commission, 
And this third point that we're talking about on evangelism and conversion, these are exciting things happening in today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the Great Commission, as you call it, to evangelize is a task that is each Christian has, uh, you know, I, including Catholics. I remember the great, the I think it was uh, <clears throat> Pope John Paul II, right, speaking about the new evangelization of the West, right, which is becoming more and more secular, less and less Christian. Um, and I think probably you will, that fourth point is is where we really have a lot of a lot in common as we speak. And uh, I like the way you speak about the need for an internal evangelization in the Orthodox Church, right? So the evangelization is both internal and external, right? It's both. Right. And, um, maybe a good way to end. Um, is by citing another passage, another powerful and beautiful passage um, uh, on page 224. Um, there seems little doubt. Uh, it's starting there. There seems? Yes, on page 224 of my book, I'd like to end with this quote and to comment a bit on it and wrap things up. He says that I say there, I say, there seems to be, there seems little doubt that one of the most urgent needs at this time in history is for the Orthodox Church to engage in an aggressive, quote, internal mission of spiritual renewal and reconversion, conversion or reconversion of its own people to Jesus Christ. We need to recognize and preach the gospel that is already there in our own church because it is not always shown clearly, it is not always shown and clearly proclaimed to us by our leaders. Just because the gospel is formally in the life of the church does not mean that Orthodox parishioners have understood and appropriated its message. Church leaders must never take the gospel of Jesus Christ for granted, but freshly proclaim its saving message anew for each person in each generation in each sacramental act, in each liturgy, and in each period of fasting and prayer. And um, so I, I, uh, I think this, this is certainly the burden of the book. And the, as, I, as I close, I want to go back to what the purpose of the book is. For the Orthodox, the purpose is to encourage all all of us in the church, lay and clerics alike, to keep the gospel clear and central in every life-giving action of the church, in everything we do, to keep the main thing the main thing. And uh, I hope that this book will help all of our churches and every Christian worker uh, to keep the main thing the main thing. I've tried to demonstrate how this can be done if you read it, especially as an Orthodox in the first part of the book, that's where you'll see it displayed as the chapter on the divine liturgy will show you how the gospel is presented liturgically. Uh, the, one, the chapter on the quest for transfigured humanity will show you how the, how the monastic tradition and the spiritual life of the church had at its core the gospel, the philokalia, 
the chapter on the Philokalia, how the gospel plays out throughout the whole thing. So may God help all of us to mm -hmm. keep the gospel clear, central, mm -hmm. and compelling in every life-giving action of the church, because whenever the gospel is weakened in our local churches, then the church becomes weak. But when the gospel is made clear and strong and appropriate, appropriately given in the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is fire. And when there is fire in the local churches, there is life. Mm -hmm. Amen. And what is the task for the evangelicals? Uh, you, you just said that. <laughs> okay. The task for the evangelicals if I would have one, just one, and I give several, but the big one is the way we regard history. Uh, the Orthodox, the, you cannot be, we all agree on the importance of history, that God, Christ came at a certain moment in history when the fullness of time, St. Paul says, mm -hmm. God sent his son. And for us, the way we interpret history and the way we, the place of history and the, and the development of the church is very different because for us, uh, there, we mustn't pick it apart and set ourselves up as the judge over this or that aspect, but we need to submit ourselves to the organic life of the church. And by the history of the church, we can understand because the church's spiritual life, its sacramental life, has sifted through the centuries of progress and has given us and distilled for us the, uh, the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So I would challenge the, uh, the evangelicals to reevaluate how they view history and especially the question of historical continuity. It's been our belief that the, and, and I leave this, and I, I'll leave you with this. This is the quotation on the importance of continuity in the Christian tradition. And I'd like to quote just two things for them on page 282. I note this all at the bottom, toward the bottom, all this contrasts with evangelical stress on the invisible body of Christ as the criterion of unity. Um, let me go on, forget that one. Let me just end with one quote by Father John Meyendorf of Blessed Memory, stresses the orthodox perspective with characteristic discernment. And here is what he says, a short paragraph. Meyendorf said, there is no orthodoxy without holy tradition, which implies communion in spirit and in truth with the witness of the apostles and the fathers, based upon the belief that by the power of God and in spite of all historical human weaknesses, there was and there is an uninterrupted, consistent, and continuous holy tradition of faith held by the church throughout the centuries. This belief in tradition is not identical with simple conservatism. Holy tradition is a living tradition. It is a witness to the unchanging truth in a changing world. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Nassif. A uh, very rich and fruitful conversation. Lucky 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.